0: Heavenly Father, I pray that just in the reading of Peter's sermon, that we would be rightly convicted, knowing full well, Lord, that it's our sins that placed your Son, our Savior, upon the cross. I ask, Lord, that you would, by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us and is now present in this church, that you would bring a conviction that leads to repentance, faith, faith and great joy. Joy in knowing that we're no longer bound by the guilt, no longer bound by the punishment, no longer bound by the consequences of our own sin, but through the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, the fact that He has been raised from the dead and is now seated at your right hand, we have hope now and forever. And so I pray, Lord, we hear this message with great hope, Not denying our sin or denying our guilt, but placing it at the foot of the cross that we might receive the grace and mercy that flows from the blood of Christ. I ask that you would do that, Lord, to encourage us that we might be a people set apart for your glory, that we as a church, as one body, would have the right witness here in Cambrian Park, that we would be the living testimonies of sons and daughters of our King, as we share the gospel with those who have yet to hear of the great work He accomplished and the hope He offers to them as well. I pray, Lord, You would give us clarity on the time that this is the Messiah's era. It is the time between His resurrection from the dead and His glorious return. It is a time of salvation for all who repent and believe. Lord, encourage us with that Loosen our tongues and open our mouths that we might share this great testimony with one another and with all those in our mission field. We pray, God, that You would be glorified this morning as Your Spirit moves mightily amongst us, enabling us to think clearly, to be rightly convicted, to be rightly encouraged, and then to be changed this very hour. It is our desire, Lord, to be transformed to the image of Your Son. That is the end. We pray that you would do that work now in Christ's name, amen, amen. Good morning, my beloved. So if your Bible's not open to Acts chapter 2, that was a pretty good sermon, huh? Pastor Kurt just read? (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to follow that, by the way, hard to follow that. Uh, So this sermon is a plagiarized sermon. I'm taking it from Peter entirely. But I think that's okay because we're supposed to be preaching the Word of God. So this is probably one of the few times I'll plagiarize a sermon and tell you that and be okay with it in my own conscience. In 1995, Eva Kor gained international attention when she traveled on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi death camp Auschwitz to Germany. And she traveled there to meet Dr. Hans Munk at the gas chamber at Birkenau to publicly forgive him. Dr. Munk was one of the doctors who worked alongside the infamous Dr. Mengel, who you've probably heard of, conducting horrific experiments against their Jewish captives, specifically against twins. Eva and her twin sister Miriam were only 10 years old when their family was taken captive in Romania and sent to the camp at Auschwitz. She and Miriam were experimented on six days a week for four days straight years. Experimented in ways that I could not, given the horrific nature mentioned them from God's pulpit. By God's grace, they survived to see the liberation of Auschwitz in 1945 by the allied forces. Their parents, their brothers and sisters were not so fortunate. Having met Dr. Munk later in life, and hearing him describe to her what he said about Auschwitz as, quote, the nightmare I live with every single day, Eva decided to bring some relief to Dr. Monk's tortured soul by presenting him with a signed declaration of amnesty. So on the 50th anniversary, as they stood at the gas chamber in Birkenau, she gave him this declaration, an official pardon. Granting Dr. Monk complete and total forgiveness for what he had done to her, to her sister, and to their family. It was one of those moments when the world stood still and God gave a glimpse of the glorious gospel of grace and the forgiveness he offers mankind through the murdered son, Jesus. This morning, as we hear Peter preach to the crowd, at Pentecost, I would like us to see our part in the death of Jesus Christ. I would like us to see the forgiveness that God grants to all who repent and believe, and I would like us to take this declaration of amnesty, the gospel of grace, to our friends, our family, our neighbors, and this community, that they too might be set free from the daily nightmare of sin and guilt we live under apart from Jesus Christ. I'd like to do that by looking at one, the Messiah's era, His time. Number two, the Messiah's power. And number three, the Messiah's salvation. The Messiah, that means Savior, messiah the Savior, the Christ. His time, His power, and His salvation. The theme of the sermon is simple. Christ grants guilty sinners peace with God. Christ grants guilty sinners peace with God. Point number one, the Messiah's era So in the context of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had descended upon the 120 that were gathered in the upper room. The 120 find themselves proclaiming the works of God. They've moved to a public place. They're proclaiming the works of God in multiple languages as the Spirit had given utterance. And thousands gather around now, the 120, to try to understand what is going on. Dr. Luke tells us they were amazed and perplexed because they were hearing God worshipped in their own native language even though it was Galileans who were worshipping God. It led some in the crowd to accuse the disciples of being drunk at 9 a.m. on the high holy day of Pentecost. So Peter, along with the eleven, stand up before this crowd to bring some much needed clarity to the situation. The latter part, look at verse 14, middle of verse 14, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Peter says, listen very closely to what I'm about to say. He's going to preach the first gospel message post-Pentecost. He wants them all to hear. Verse 15, he said, for these people, the the 120 the Spirit had come upon, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m., too early for them to be drunk. He says, but you are witnessing The very Word of God, Yahweh, declared to the prophet Joel centuries ago. Look at verse 17. Peter quotes Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, God said, "I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." So Peter saying, "This just happened." He explains what they think to be a, a drunken revelry to be the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled in their midst. Now these were pious Jews. They believed the prophecies. They expected God to actually respond to them and act in accordance with his word. And so Peter tells them, you're witnesses. You're witnesses to what God said. All 120, this is important, all 120 who gathered that day, sons and daughters, young men and old men, male and female servants, they received the Holy Spirit and they were prophesying just as God said to Joel the Holy Spirit had been poured out. It was validated by the fact that they were hearing God worshipped in their own native tongues regardless of where they were from. The significance of this moment, my beloved, cannot be overstated by Peter or by us this morning. Peter is revealing through the prophet Joel that the age of the Messiah has come. The Jews believed that God was going to send the Messiah, the son of David, a Savior to restore Israel. And Peter saying, that day is now. It started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it will go all the way until He comes again in glory on the day of judgment. Look at verse 19. Peter again quoting the prophet Joel. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Then the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And so Peter establishes two markers, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the day when he comes again. And we're right in that time. He's telling all the pious Jews, these are the last days. These are the days of the Messiah. And that was such good news because the days of the Messiah God offers. Look at verse 21. He offers sinful man salvation during this time. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just Jew, Jew and Gentile, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved during this messianic era, during this time of the Messiah, these last days. And the good news, my beloved, if you don't know this, We're still in those last days. That means for you, for everyone that you know that does not know Christ, He has not come yet again in glory. And so today is the day of salvation. So if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as you sit and listen to this sermon, then repent and believe that you might be forgiven of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit too. This is a time of reconciliation between God and man. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation through the shed blood of the Messiah. Now, the Jews listening to Peter's sermon, they were pious Jews, and they probably thought, all of that prophecy sounds good, except for verse 21. We're pious Jews. We don't need to call out to God. We don't need to repent. We are children of Abraham. We are pious Jews. We live righteous lives. And they likely thought, you know, maybe some of the less pious Jews, those whom we know, they need to cry out like Joel said, and maybe, maybe they're talking about the, all the flesh, the Gentiles. Certainly, they would have interpreted Joel like that as well. Now, I would argue that most Americans that you share the gospel with, explaining that the age of the Messiah has come and that God calls all people everywhere to repent and believe and be saved, I, ar- I would argue that most people, if they believe that there is a God and they believe that there is some form of a heaven... When they hear the messages, the messianic age, repent and believe, they will respond like the pious Jews. Maybe not claiming a right to Abraham unless they come from Abraham's line, but I would argue they think they would have a right to heaven because they're generally, in their minds, a good person. Not perfection. Most people don't argue for perfection or sinlessness, which, by the way, is what the Bible requires to enter heaven. Sinlessness, and not salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who grants us his sinlessness. I would argue that most who believe in a God and an idea of heaven would say that they will enter because of their own good works. Or to be more precise, in our day and age, most would argue that they would be allowed to enter into the presence of God and have salvation because they're not that bad. Not that bad. You see, my beloved, the Western worldview of morality has become so marginalized and so perverted from God's Word that even those who embrace a works-based salvation, that model that if I do good, God will receive me, it's not even if I do good, God will receive me. If I just am not that bad, then maybe God will receive me. If I don't cause that much harm, the thinking's like this, I haven't committed physical murder yet. I haven't raped anybody, I haven't robbed a bank, I haven't cheated on my spouse, and therefore the wrong conclusion is, I'm not that bad, therefore if there is a heaven, God will grant me access." That's a very poor standard, my beloved, of coming into the presence of a thrice holy God. Many Americans, like the pious Jews at Pentecost, have concluded wrongly that they can access heaven and Christ and a holy God by not being that bad. The general response, if you share the gospel with friends and family and they believe that there's a heaven, they say, well, I'm I'm a good person or I'm generally a good person, according to their standard of goodness. It's funny, when the rich young ruler came before Jesus, he was very much a pious Jew. So pious, he said to Jesus, I've kept the law since I was a child, and Jesus does not rebuke him. The rich young ruler said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know Jesus' response, Luke 18, 19. He responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Only God is good. And only God's standard of goodness applies. But if only God is good, then the understanding is that no one is good. No, not one. And therefore, no one is good enough to go to heaven, regardless of how pious you think your life might be. So if we proclaim, if we want to proclaim the full gospel of Jesus Christ, we must do what Peter did. We must not only tell people this is the era of the Messiah. This is the time to repent and believe and be saved. We must bring the full weight of sin, an understanding that Jesus Christ was in fact murdered and now He reigns upon those who have never heard. It's not sufficient to tell people to repent and believe. It's not sufficient to say, this is the error of the Messiah. We must do what Peter did and bring the full weight of the gospel, the full weight of the cross on those who do not know Him so they can see clearly their sin before a holy God. Point number two, the Messiah's power. So Peter continues his sermon. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. does it again, does it three times. Listen, hear these words, hear what I say. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, and then he says, as you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now we must remember, this is Pentecost. So this is only 50 days after the sacrificial death and miraculous resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 50 days. So Peter reminds these men of Israel of all the mighty works and the wonders and signs that God did through this Jesus, this man, works many of them had seen with their own eyes. Certainly most, if not all, had heard eyewitness testimonies of Christ feeding the thousands and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind. Works attested to the fact that Jesus Christ was in fact their long-awaited Messiah and that Jesus Christ was in fact the King and therefore what? The kingdom had come. There was no denying that. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, after casting out a demon, Jesus said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so Peter says to his crowd in verse 22, You yourselves know these things. They can't deny it. They were there. They saw it. They know the kingdom of God is here. And then Peter drops the hammer. Look at verse 23. He says, this Jesus, the one affirmed by God as the Messiah, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What a sermon. What a first sermon. Peter's very careful to ensure that those listening understand that the death of Christ upon the cross was purposeful. That was part of God's ordained plan. It was not an accident. It was not an uncomfortable circumstance. But verse 23 again, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the horrific execution of Jesus Christ upon the cross had been ordained by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundations of the world. This was not an accident. From eternity past, it was God's plan to crush his son, Isaiah fifty-three verse ten, written centuries before his death, it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes and, th- and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. But after affirming that this was God's plan all along to crucify his son upon the cross, that Christ might die for the sins of many. After affirming this, he then reveals, Peter then reveals the means by which this death took place. Verse 23 again, you, he said to the crowd, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You men of Israel, you pious Jews handed Christ over to who? The lawless men, the Romans, and together you cooperated in the murder of God's Son. And not just any murder, but murder upon the cross, the most barbaric, and shameful form of punishment perfected by the Romans. This was the means by which God exercised His will. So in perfect accord with God's sovereign will that the Christ would die, Jew and Gentile acted of their own free accord to put God's Son to death. In other words, Peter makes it clear that all mankind was represented at the cross. Jew and Gentile. Then and now, complicit in the murder of the Messiah. Participating in the death of God's Son. Peter wanted his audience, and I believe he would want us today to feel the full weight, the full weight of your participation in the murder of God's Son. He'd want us to feel that. And if that were not sufficient to have those Jews re-listen again to verse 21 in Joel's call for them to cry out for mercy, if that was not sufficient, Peter continues, and he says, oh, by the way, the one Jesus of Nazareth that you murdered, he's alive and he's reigning. A terrifying thought for those complicit in the execution. It's one thing to commit murder as long as the person you murder stays dead. Christ did not stay dead. Look at verse 23. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. He was far too righteous, but more importantly, it was part of God's plan for him to live. The earthly courts say, you must die. God's heavenly court said, you will die and then you will live again, as God had purposed not only to crush his son to pay for the sins of many, but then to raise his son from the dead on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures that many might be raised too. And so, Peter, he's not just making this stuff up, he's a good exegete. He goes to the Word of God, he quotes a Psalm of David, Psalm 16, to substantiate this truth. He quotes Psalm 16:27 when he said, "You will not David said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption." This is David's prophetic prayer to God. But we know he's speaking of the Messiah. In fact, Peter says, "You know full well that David's still here." Full knowledge that his body is here and likely decomposed. Look at verse 29. Peter says, brother, I I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David could not have been speaking about his own flesh not suffering decay. He was speaking prophetically about the Messiah. Look at verse 30. David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ the Messiah, the Son of David, the greater David, who would be raised from the dead and receive the eternal throne of God, the same Messiah all those pious Jews had been waiting for for centuries. Same one. I cannot imagine the chill that had been going down their spine in hearing this news. This Jesus of Nazareth, whom they murdered, is now alive. But it gets worse for them. Peter was stating this fact bluntly. He said, "You murdered the Messiah, and according to God's redemptive plan, He is now alive." Verse thirty-two: "This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Say, "Listen, we witnessed this. He was alive. You know He was alive. He was testified to by God as the Messiah. He died. You know He died, and He's now alive." My beloved, it'd been bad enough if they had just murdered God's Son. But they murdered God's son and now he's alive again. And it would be bad enough that they just murdered God's son and he came back to life. But they murdered God's son he came back to life. And then we're told that he's seated on the throne in heaven. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up and that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the proof that Christ was seated upon the throne is the fact that the Holy Spirit was in their midst. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand, he, Jesus, has poured out his spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Peter's saying, we know he's on the throne because the Spirit is here. And then Peter draws from another psalm of David, Psalm 101, not only to affirm the resurrection of the Lord, but the ascension to the seat of power. The right hand of God was the right hand of power. It was the the center by which all power would be exercised over the heavens and the earth. The Lord said to my Lord, that's not David talking to God. That's God the Father saying to the Son, Sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord. God the Father said to God the Son, Sit at my right hand. For how long? And this had to be the part that caused them to stop breathing. Until, God the Father says, until I make your enemies your footstool. Until every knee bows before the throne. Every knee. I guarantee you there was no one sleeping in the middle of Peter's sermon. There was no one tired in the middle of Peter's sermon. He had a captivated audience. Peter's use of the Old Testament and the undeniable fact that the Holy Spirit had descended upon them. They knew that what Peter was preaching was true. They knew it. That this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Son of David. He was in fact the long-awaited Messiah. All those present realized that in cooperation with the Romans, they were complicit in the son's murder. But according to his plan of redemption, God raised him from the dead and seated him as ruler over everything. They murdered the Christ The Christ rose, the Christ ascended, the Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and then God the Father says, Every one of your enemies I will put under your feet, I will punish. And if there is a mic drop verse in this Sermon of Peter's, it's verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that what? God has made him, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, the Messiah. This Jesus, by the way, whom you crucified. It's amazing they didn't start running for the hills. Whom you crucified. Their Messiah. These are pious Jews. They were waiting for him to come, the son of David, to establish the reign. Their Messiah, God says, he is the Lord. He is God. Lord of lords, king of kings, you killed him. Whatever foolish thoughts they had about entering the presence of God because of their own righteousness or because they were children of Abraham must have become to them utterly foolish. Must have in that moment. They were murderers. They were murderers, and not just murderers, but murderers of God's Son. Murderers of God's Son who is now alive, exalted in power, and promised to bring every single enemy into submission, including them. Up to this point in the sermon, there's not a lot of encouragement for the pious Jew listening to Peter preach. I imagine they went back to verse 21 when they heard Peter say Joel's prophecy, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Suddenly that verse had great relevancy to them. Their piety, their self-righteousness, their being children of Abraham meant nothing in the light of the fact that they murdered God's Son. Their guilt was upon their heads. The blood was upon their hands. This crucified, risen reigning king was going to punish all those who do not seek mercy. My beloved, lest you say, oh, those poor Jews, those poor, foolish, pious Jews, every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that I've ever committed, every sin that we commit is against this same king. David was blinded by the fact that he had committed adultery against Bathsheba and murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And it wasn't until the prophet Nathan came to him and held him into account that he realized the depth of his sin. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And then when he prayed to God, do you remember what he prayed? He didn't seek forgiveness from Bathsheba. He didn't go to Uriah's family and say, please forgive me. I'm sure he did at some point. The first thing he did, though, in Psalm 51, he cries out to God, have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, he says, blot out my transgressions. Now listen to this. He said, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment against me, Peter said. Our sins, everyone, big and small, Are first against our thrice holy God. They are first against Jesus. Every sin that you have committed, are committing, or will commit is a rejection of this King. It's a rejection that His kingdom has come. Our sins, big and small, are saying to God, We don't want Jesus as our King. We don't want His kingdom. We don't want His laws and we don't want His way of life. Every single sin we exercise, we are saying to God, away with Him. Every single sin, when we participate in it, we are saying as the crowd did on that horrific day, crucify Him, crucify Him, away with Him, He's not our King. But at the coming of the Holy Spirit Pentecost, revealed clearly that Christ is upon His throne, ruling from heaven, that this is the age of the Messiah, the final days of God's redemptive story, that it also means that judgment is here too. Look at verse 9 again. The blood and the fire and vapor of smoke is also upon us. And that the Messiah who was murdered by our sins is alive, and He is reigning over the heavens and the earth, and He promises, the Father promised, that every single enemy of the Messiah will be placed under His feet, will be punished for our rebellion, then the question for us right now is, what hope is there? What hope was there for the pious Jew standing there at Pentecost listening to Peter preach? What hope is there for you as a sinner? What hope is there for all your family and friends who have yet to come to a saving grace in Christ? How can anyone who has participated directly or indirectly in the murder of God, be forgiven by God? How is that possible? We've seen one, the Messiah's era. Two, the messianic power that he now exercises. I want to give you point three because I don't want you to leave like this. This is not the end of Peter's sermon. And praise God, it's not the end of this one. Point number three, the Messiah's salvation. How did all those present Respond to Peter's sermon. They're thinking the same thing we're thinking. What hope could we possibly have if we participated in the murder of God's Son? Verse 37. And when they heard this, Peter's sermon, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, How are we to survive? Brothers, how are we to not be punished by God eternally? The full weight of Peter's sermon, the full weight of God's Word, the full weight of the Holy Spirit dwelling now in their presence had come upon them, and we are told, Dr. Luke says, they were cut to the heart. No more games. No more fooling around with the old covenant and their sacrificial system. No more thinking, I'm a child of Abraham. I live according to the law. Their hearts and their minds were rightly cut through because they realized, maybe for the first time, they realized they were dead sinners needing to be made alive. Guilty not only of rejecting the Messiah when he had been there, but guilty of putting him to death. Guilty of sin upon sin, of not putting their faith in this Messiah, but putting their faith in their own works. How could a story like this end well? It wouldn't be a story on Netflix today. How can a story like this end well? It cannot if not for our good and gracious God. It cannot end well if not for God. You see, my beloved, what The Jews and the Gentiles, the Romans, meant for evil. The murder of the Messiah, God, meant for good. Salvation by grace through faith in the murdered risen Son for all who repent and believe. They cried out, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice the solution to the universal dilemma that all mankind finds himself in, guilty of our sins, guilty of murdering the Christ before a holy God? It's not another old covenant practice. Peter doesn't say, pious Jews, go sacrifice ten bulls, seven goats, and do up another grain offering. After all, it's Pentecost. The old covenant was gone. The new covenant had come. And it was a covenant of grace and faith in Christ. It was a covenant to be entered into through repentance and baptism. It was a covenant that would receive forgiveness from God in total and the Holy Spirit. We must Peter says, repent and be baptized. And God must, if we are to be saved, He must forgive us of our sins and give us the Holy Spirit if we are to be saved from eternal damnation. Peter starts with repentance because that's where true religion is. True relationship is in the heart. And so Peter's audience now realizing they're guilty, they're cut to the heart. Peter says, with the godly sorrow the Holy Spirit has now given you and that is the gift. My beloved, when you come to an understanding for the first time in your life, that you are a sinner before a holy God deserving of eternal punishment. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. You don't think that on your own. We don't come to that conclusion in the flesh. That's a work of God. A godly sorrow. Not because we've sinned and we got caught. A godly sorrow because we've sinned against a good, gracious, and loving Father. Peter says, repent of this. They knew what that meant. Turn from it completely. Do it a spiritual about face. From your flesh, your sin, your self-salvation, and turn to Christ. Confess your sins before this holy God. See the depth of your rebellion. Turn away from the sin. Turn to God and live. And he says in light of this internal turning, this cutting of the heart and turning away from sin and turning to God, he said now be baptized. The external manifestation of the internal work of God. Look at verse 38 again. Repent and what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, three and a half years earlier, was baptizing people and calling them to repent too. But here, Peter says something quite different. He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, why does he do that? Because the whole new covenant is based upon grace through faith in who? Jesus Christ. This was the means. This was the mode. Why so important that it was Jesus Christ? Why the name of Jesus Christ? Because they accepted or had to accept the fact that the kingdom had come. Christ is that new king. And therefore their allegiance to him was everything. It was everything. He's the new king. He's seated upon the throne. He's the only one that has the power to save. And therefore, Peter says, be baptized in the name of this Jesus. Go into those waters of baptism just as Christ entered that tomb. Take all your sin with you. And then when you rise from those waters as Christ rose from the dead, be washed, be clean. Be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and now walk in holiness. Total faith, total transformation in the work of God through the work of Christ. And then with repentance and baptism, God promises two amazing things. Oh, my beloved, if this doesn't cause your heart to rejoice and leap up so you may leap out of your chair, he promises forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Spirit. Look at verse 38 again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Sin was the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin keeps mankind separated from God. We can't enjoy God. We can't worship God. We can't walk in obedience to God because of sin. It was the problem in the very beginning. Adam and Eve engaged in sin and they were cast out of the garden, separated from God. We engage in sin and are separated from God. But here, God says, I'm going to do something extraordinary. Through repentance and faith, through repentance and baptism, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you of every sin, every sin you have committed, every sin you're engaged in right now, and every sin you will ever commit until you come into my presence. Complete and total forgiveness. No more guilt. Oh, my beloved. No more guilt. No more guilt. No more separation from God. The intimacy that you long for, the joy that you're missing, the obedience, the desire in your heart to obey every single word that God says is a result of sin. But here God says, your sin is no more. I've washed you clean. In Christ, you are, if you're in Christ, if you've repented, you've been baptized, In Christ, you are completely forgiven. This very morning, all your sins, every one. White as snow. I don't know if you know, clean snow is pretty white. Your character nature in Christ, you have received His absolute holiness. You are white as snow. You think, well, that would be sufficient. But God is so gracious. He says, and I'm going to give you a gift through your repentance and faith, through your being baptized, I'm not only going to forgive you for your sins, I'm going to to give you a gift. I'm going to give you the greatest gift I could possibly give. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. Not the gifts of the Spirit. Those will certainly come with the Spirit dwelling in you. But the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. The third person of the Holy Triune God dwelling in you Captivating your heart, captivating your mind, dwelling in you, loving you, sanctifying you, making you holy, guiding you through this pilgrimage. He's the gift. He is the great promise that God the Father and God the Son made, said I will send the gift of the Spirit. The great promise revealed here at Pentecost was that through repentance and baptism God would forgive Their sins and send the Holy Spirit to them. What a relief for our pious Jews on that momentous day. What a relief for their guilt ridden heart hearing Peter tell them, You're a murderer and you murdered God's son. No doubt Deuteronomy 32 35 was going through their minds and they were thinking, God said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. They were pious Jews, they knew that verse. But instead of vengeance, what they rightly deserve, they get mercy. Instead of being repaid for the murder of God's Son, they receive grace, they receive total forgiveness, and they receive the gift of God Himself, the Holy Spirit. And this is what God offered to them and to all flesh, Jew and Gentile, throughout the centuries. And what God offers to you this morning Look at verse 39. The sermon just gets better and better. For the promise, Peter says, is for you, all the Jews at Pentecost, and for your children, the generations that will follow, and for all who are far off, Jew and Gentile throughout the whole world, that's us. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. My beloved, this is the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. It is the great hope for your neighbor, for this nation, for this community in the midst of these evil times. Luke tells us that Peter said in verse 4, Peter, with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This sermon of Peter's was much longer you say, well, shouldn't our sermons be shorter because Peter's sermon was short; It was much longer. He was ta- calling upon the Old Testament. But notice what he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Repent and believe. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Receive the full forgiveness of your sins and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's how you save yourselves from this crooked generation. I don't need to tell you how bad things are, my beloved. You're in it. You're in it every day. Through repentance and faith, God forgives sins, and He sends the Holy Spirit to enable you to walk in it. We will see next week that 3,000 of those listening received the Word of God proclaimed by Peter. They repented of their sins. They were baptized. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they were added to the church. First church. Before I close, though, I want to go back to our story about Eva and Dr. Monk. For fifty years, Dr. Monk lived with the life-debilitating guilt of his unforgivable sins against Eva, her sister Miriam, and likely thousands of other Jews he mutilated and put to death at Auschwitz. But through Eva's personal declaration of amnesty. He was given an opportunity for the first time to heal, to experience the refreshing and freeing power that comes when our guilt is truly forgiven and truly forgotten by our debtor. My beloved Christ died to relieve the burden of your eternal guilt. He gave His body and blood on the cross to relieve you of your rebellion, your sin, and your participation in his own murder. He died to grant you an eternal declaration of amnesty, signed by the king himself and sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you had this declaration in your hand, it might read something like this. The Lord declares to you, listen, this is what Jesus says to you. Though in your venom you procured my death. I forsook my life to grant you breath. No longer enslaved by guilt and fear, I sent my spirit to draw you near. So walk in freedom, a creature made new, loving one another as I have loved you. Oh, dear child, your guilt is no more, so set your gaze on that golden shore. Walk in holiness, forgiveness, and love, knowing that I your Lord, reign from above. I think that's what the declaration might say. I imagine for 50 years, Dr. Munk tried to hide, deny, or rationalize his sin away, but his conscience remained burdened because his hands were covered with blood, blood only a crucified Savior could clean. My beloved, as long as you deny or diminish the sin that you have done, you remain under the weight of a guilty conscience. But if you go to the cross of Christ, if you go to the cross of Jesus whom you crucified, there is forgiveness and there is joy. I'll close with a little bunion. Can't go wrong with that. In Pilgrim's Progress, he describes Christian making his way up to Calvary, to the cross of Christ. Listen. Up this way did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a tomb. As Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble, and so continued till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Now listen. Then Christian stood still a while to look and to wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden of sin. He looked, therefore, and looked again till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be with you. The first said to him, thy sins be forgiven. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him in royal attire. The third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a a roll with a seal upon it. That, of course, is the Spirit. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want a right holy conviction to be upon our hearts and minds this morning. Not to bring discouragement, to bring relief that we might bring every sin, past, present, and future, to the cross of Christ, that we, like Christian, might see our sins tumble into that tomb and be no more. I pray, Father, You would grant us Your mercy and grace through Christ, that we would, this day, if we have not, we would repent, we would be baptized, and we would receive the full forgiveness that comes through the cross of Your Son and receive Your Spirit. We are so thankful, Lord, that You've done this work in some of us I pray you would continue to do that great work, Father, that we would realize the incredible blessing that we have of being saved by your grace through faith in your Son. And in that, Lord, we would walk as great lights in this dark place, that we would share this great news that all who repent and believe can be forgiven and receive the Spirit too. Lord, open our mouths, I pray, that we might become great witnesses to this community, to our family, to our friends, to all those that we see in our mission field, that they too might know that death does not have to be their end, that they too can have life in Christ. I pray, Lord, for a blessing upon this church, that you would make us mighty in our walk in Christ, that you would make us holy as you are holy, and that you would set us on the mission that you set that church on 2,000 years ago to be the people that you've called and equipped us to be. In Christ's holy name, amen.